Small Time Crooks is the 30th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 2000. Woody Allen stars as Ray, a small time crook with a big time plan, to rob a bank digging through from the shop next door. His wife Frenchie, played by Tracy Ullman, sells cookies in the store as a cover, but then the cookies start to sell. Small Time Crooks was a pure and silly comedy after a run of bitter and dark films. It's not the deepest and it's not one of his best, but it's an easy film to love, held down by some lovable losers. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast, from me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 5, we look at 2000's Small Time Crooks. We'll look at how the film came to be, what I loved and didn't love, and plenty of fun facts and trivia. Of course, spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first. Oh, baby, what I couldn't do With plenty of money and you Despite the worry By the late 90s, Alan was making some of his most challenging and bitter work. Some of it was great, but 1997's Deconstructing Harry was angry and rude, 1998's Celebrity was bleak and without hope, and 1999's Sweet and Lowdown was a downbeat portrait of a self-destructive man, so it was with some relief to actually have a bit of fun when Small Time Crooks came along. Alan sat on the idea for a long time, at least as far back as 1993, when he presented the idea as one of many to Douglas McGrath as one to work on together. McGrath and Alan ultimately wrote and made Bullets Over Broadway instead, but Alan held on to the idea. Funnily enough, McGrath has a small speaking role in this film. Alan not only held on to this idea, he cleaned house. Around this time, and for whatever reason, Alan took a bunch of comedy ideas that he had and decided to knock them out one by one. This was kind of new for Alan, who usually waits until a film is done before deciding on what to do next. It's also Alan's habit of reacting against what he's done. He followed the small town period story of The Purple Rose of Cairo with a modern metropolitan tale in Hannah and Her Sisters. And he followed Hannah, which was set in existing apartments and existing spaces, with Radio Days, a hugely ambitious period comedy with many built sets. And then he followed Radio Days, a film with over 100 speaking parts, with September, a film with mainly six characters and one house. And so on and so on and so on. Maybe Alan was just in a good mood. He was happily married and his films were doing fine. And he just wanted to make people laugh again. Or maybe he was relenting and giving people what he thought they wanted. Whatever the reason, this film begins a run of five sort of romantic comedies in a row, four of which he would star in. You have to go back to 1980s Stardust Memories to find another run of Alan starring in four films in a row. This would also be the least acclaimed and least successful run of Alan's entire career. But we'll get to that when we get to those films. Back to Small Time Crooks. It also happens to be the best film in this early 2000s run. It's not because the concept or premise is that great. It's no better or worse than the next few films that follow. It really just comes down to the incredible cast, some lovely characters, a handful of jokes, and an overall sense of fun. So what do you want to play now? What about Indian poker? Seven cards. You hold your cards over your head. Nobody sees their hand. We bet on each other's hand. High, low, maybe some wild cards. All the reds. Where do you want to sit down, mate? The spark of the film came from an article Alan read about a failed heist where some criminals tried to tunnel into a bank. For Alan, his mind went straight to where the criminals were tunnelling from 
and what if that shop had become a success? Alan has always had it in for fame and fortune. It's not something he respects. Coming from a working class background, he despises it so much that he has said in interviews over the years that if he wasn't a director, he'd be a petty theft. It wasn't just a line. It seems that those were the sort of characters that he would meet in his working class Brooklyn neighbourhood growing up. Small time bookies, things that fall off the back of a truck, and just low level criminal stuff what Alan calls the rackets in this film. And growing up, as much as he was enamoured by people he saw on screen who lived in wonderful Manhattan apartments, he was also enamoured by these crooks. Alan, of course, had played around with this idea already in Take the Money and Run, his first film way back in 1969. Small Time Crooks allows Alan to look at both sides of the coin, the petty crooks and the high society types. And having that range of characters allowed Alan to play with a couple of his key influences, The Honeymooners and Ernst Lubitsch. was a sitcom from the black and white days of 1955, running for just one season, but it has never lost its impact. It starred Jackie Gleason, Audrey Meadows and Art Carney, three working class folks who basically just bickered at each other. The jokes are still great. It's insult after insult with no niceties, thick and fast. There's a joy in being able to be so rude, especially when the jokes are so funny. Alan always loved The Honeymooners and wanted to try his hand at writing that sort of quick fire dialogue. Watching this in the day and watching it now, the dialogue has dated. For me, what is delightful is that speed of the dialogue. There's always jokes coming at you and some land better than others. But the fun is watching Alan and the cast work at this manic pace. Hey, Frenchie, I'm home. Who's that? Who's that? Who do you, who do you, it's the Pope. I always wanted to see your apartment. For God's sakes, who, do you, who comes I'm, home every I'm night? Watching me. Princess Diana. Oh, not again. For God's sakes, how many times are you going to do that? Look at those clothes. I told you time and again that she got all that stuff discount. What that, that, that you know? You think those kings and queens? You think they buy retail? It's a no. F- hey, here, I got you some chocolates. Chocolates? You heard of chocolates? These are chocolates. I got you chocolates. How come? What do you mean? How come? I got I got you. These are from Belgium. They're handmade by Belgiumites. Tell so it to the Marines. You're up to something. You get caught hitting on a waitress. Hey. In- 25 years of marriage, have I ever hit on anybody but you? Yeah, well, I don't buy it, Ray. You got a scheme. You got a scheme. Come on. All right, forget it. Get me dinner. They're not for you. They're not for you. Okay. I got you nothing. Get me, just get me dinner. I want my dinner. I want it right now. And hurry up. Before you make dinner, I got to talk to you about something, though. What did I tell you? Here comes the commercial. Another inspiration was the work of Ernst Lubitsch. I love Ernst Lubitsch. Alan has talked many times about the brilliant director praising films like 1942's To Be or Not To Be. He was renowned for what was called the Lubitsch touch. Lubitsch loved to throw a joke away, so to speak. Instead of showing you a comic mishap that was about to happen, he'd leave the door closed and let the audiences figure it out. Unlike the Honeymooners, Lubitsch dealt with more kings and queens, or at least the opulent and the debonair. Alan specifically mentioned 1932's Trouble in Paradise in interviews about small-time crooks. That film was about a high-society couple who happened to be a thief and a pickpocket. But like the Honeymooners, the dialogue was sharp and everyone just said the right things all the time. And for me, the dialogue is still pretty funny to this day. Then of course, there are the classic heist films. Quite a few people pointed out that 1942's Larceny Incorporated had a similar plot to Small Time Crooks, 
another light comedy about a bunch of bank robbers. There's been plenty of these sorts of comic heist films, although it does seem like another throwback to films of the 40s and the 50s. So it's interesting that Alan set the story in the modern day at all, when all the influences were over 50 years earlier. It's not hard to imagine this entire film transported to the 40s or the 50s. Alan apparently played around with turning this story into a stage play as well. Alan doesn't make a huge use of the modern New York setting that he finally settled on. It's not one of those films that sells New York to the rest of the world. But Alan took all those elements and produced a script about Ray and Frenchie and a cookie shop. The heist that inspired the initial idea would only make up the first part of the film. Alan would then move to Deeper Matters and a parable about the perils of getting rich. You got a strange look in your eye, like the guy from the book. Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde or Ted Bundy, I can never remember. Look at the time I've put in nurturing an idea that's not gonna happen. Is that what it was? The well, money? I, I need I need my prescription, I need my little blue pill, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go and get them, and uh, I would very, very much appreciate it if when I came back you were gone. Thank you. David, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like the cigarette case back that I gave you. I don't think so, my love. Well, I asked you for lessons in life. I guess I really got one, right? This film is really split into two parts, which I will call The Heist and The Parable. The Heist was the hook of the film, what was sold in the posters and the trailer. This was a chance for Alan to be out and out funny again. He could go full honeymooners between Ray and Frenchie and surround his leads with some great comic talents. In a heist film like this, the audience kind of expects things to roll out in a certain way. We expect antics and complications to escalate. And then we expect the heist to go right or wrong towards the end of the film, and then a lesson learnt. Instead, here, we finish our heist about 27 minutes in and spend another hour learning a lesson. It's really very strange how disconnected the two parts feel. The first part sets up the plan and sets up the problems. A shop next to a bank is empty and the plan is to tunnel through. The main problem is our gang are idiots. It's adorable as the gang comes together, but they also pick up problems along the way. The success of the cookie shop adds to the tension. Things will come to a head. And then May turns up, adding more complications. But it's 27 minutes into the film and it's all over. The heist goes wrong and the film becomes something else. It's a really jarring transition as the film pretty much starts again. Everything we saw so far was premise and now we have to work out what this film even is. The tone of the film changes and we lose characters and we gain new characters. This sudden key change still feels weird to me on rewatch. Alan does leave a couple of clues. Frenchie loves celebrities like Princess Di and she does have some horrible decor in her rundown apartment. Alan doesn't shine a light on Frenchie's taste in the earlier part of the film. Either Alan is confident enough that you'll make the connection, or he doesn't care if you make the connection. Or maybe something got cut. Or maybe it's just not a very good setup. I can give Alan the benefit of the doubt that maybe he was trying to upend our expectations. But sadly, that expectation was to spend another hour with a wonderful gang and a great silly premise. The first part, the heist, is some of Alan's best work. Alan's long takes and natural shooting style means you really get to watch funny people being funny. More than a few people compared it to Alan's pre-Annie Hall stuff when he's just trying to make you laugh. Yeah, what if we each get a fourth and she gets like a third? What are you, nuts? Then she'd be getting more than us. How you figure? He says, where are you gonna get four fourths and a third? 
Can't you add? I don't do fractions, all right? Come on, fellas, let's not get greedy over here. Because you remember that movie with Humphrey Bogart when they're digging for gold in the mountains, huh? And uh, they find the gold and they all get rich. And then this guy goes nuts and he turns on his friends. That's not that that happened that's, that's here. That's right. right. Then, then, then he gets killed by uh, these Hispanics. What is it? Right? The treasure of the treasure island. Treasure island. That's right. That was a good movie, right? Oh, you're best. After the big twists, we get to what I call the parable part. It's no longer the quick-fire honeymooners slapstick comedy. It's now a different type of humour. It's almost satire. The laughs per minute rate really grinds down. It's now one joke, really. And that joke is that Frenchie wants to join the elite and Ray wants to get a cheeseburger. Alan's given fame and fortune this kick many, many times before, notably in films like Celebrity just two years earlier or 1980's Stardust Memories. It's always interesting when Alan goes down this road as audiences don't love it. He comes across as ungrateful or bitter. Here, he kicks the good life, sure, but it's not a very strong kick. One character aside, there's really nothing wrong about the rich people that come into the orbit of Frenchie and Ray. Alan often laments that when he makes a film that it isn't about anything. This one certainly feels like a film that has no real bigger insight into the human experience. You can't believe this, huh? <laughs> I don't know. This takes bad taste in the oh, United States. This is excruciating. Like a bad symptom, aren't you? Oh. And can you believe the two of them? I can't keep a straight face. And what she's done with this apartment, the sheer flawless vulgarity of it all. She must have been frightened by a leopard. Well, look, don't knock it. I think they plan on being very generous, and for that we must be thankful. Really? And what about the heart? Not to mention the way she wears her clothes. This is the definition of bad taste. Oh, I the biggest crime, so to speak, of the second part is the loss of that amazing supporting cast. They are reduced to a couple of small scenes, and by now they are all kind of interchangeable. They don't really have anything to do. Alan crafts a small heist at the end of the film, but was it too much for it to be slightly more elaborate so maybe the rest of the cast could join in? There's still plenty to like about the parable part. Probably the best part of it is the sets. I imagine production designer Santo Loquasto had a lot of fun creating Frenchie's lavish lifestyle. There's lots of leopard prints and huge statues and way too much gold. To paraphrase Dolly Parton, it's quite expensive to look this cheap. The humour is different, but it's still pretty good. There's laughs to mine in the clash of cultures. There's just not enough of them. Throughout, the journey is pretty predictable. We know that Ray and Frenchie, who are at odds, are bound to break up in some way. We know Frenchie won't get her dream of joining the elite, and we know that David will not be a good person. There's very little surprises in the parable, although it's kind of nice to watch it play out. Probably the biggest part that is in doubt and what we stay till the end for is whether Ray and Frenchie get back together. Okay, they will likely get back together, so maybe it's more accurate to say how they get back together. Alan and Frenchie go through their trials, but it's lovely when they do get back together. All that honeymooners stuff actually makes it sweeter. They insult each other so much that we don't even know if they like each other. Turns out, they love each other. In the catalogue of Woody Allen films, Ray and Frenchie are actually one of the better, more functional couples. They love each other, are true to each other, and they stay together. So where's David now? He split the second I went bust. No, I don't believe it. He was hustling me for the dough. Sure. <sighs> so now, now we got to all begin again, you know, in, in, in more ways than one. You still want me? Still want you? Still... Frenchie, you got to ask a question like that? I'm crazy about I'm crazy you. About you're, a, you're a goddess to me. I'm, cr I'm nuts for you. 
You gotta, of course I want you. The final scene culminates in a very good ending. Alan knows how to craft a good ending with a good payoff. The one here is not one of his most amazing ones he's ever pulled off, but it's finely crafted nonetheless. It starts with Ray and Frenchie, who are back together, but broke. Ray has stolen something, a necklace, which they can fence for cash. So the idea of what they can fence is in our minds, even when Frenchie reveals that the necklace was made of glass. Then we get this touching last scene, and the camera zooms in on Frenchie's face. We haven't had any tight close-ups in the film this whole time, but we do here. We pan from Frenchie, then to Ray, and then Frenchie mentions that she has something. Because we are in a close-up, Alan builds the tension because we can't see their hands and we can't see what Frenchie has. Of course, it's the expensive cigarette case we've seen earlier. We thought we'd seen the last of it. It was a setup that was already paid off in a character point with David. So this ends up being a great double payoff. A payoff that we didn't see coming. Glass. Ray, Don't you understand? It's, I got the all glass that matters one. is that we have each other. You know, we didn't there for a while. And the whole thing made me realize how much I need you. Yeah, but you're married to such a loser, Frenchie. No, it's glass. I'm the luckiest woman in the world. Yeah, and the brokest. I'm topped out. We got nothing. As usual, I come up empty. We could pawn this. What is this? What? What is this thing? What? Who? I don't understand. Who, who's the Duke of Windsor? Actually, we could probably auction it. Where'd you get this thing? It's really the... From David. David gave you this? Well, he doesn't know it yet, so... I don't, no, I don't get it. What do you mean? Hey, it was you who taught me how to open a safe. That was one of my fondest memories of our time together. That it's the moment in the film that it's most like the Lubitsch touch. Alan doesn't over-explain, he under-explains. He doesn't show how Frenchie got the case, nor do we need Ray to understand what the hell is happening. Alan leaves it for the audience to fill in the gaps, just like Ernst Lubitsch would. The script and story had problems, but it was still pretty fun. Luckily, Alan had the cast to elevate it, and leading the cast of incredible talents is Tracy Ullman. Although the role is actually one of the more interesting what-ifs in the history of Woody Allen casting, Alan offered the role to Barbara Streisand, who was interested but had concert commitments. But I can't imagine anyone but Ullman in the role. Ullman was a star in Britain who had moved to America in the early 90s. She wrote a fan letter to Alan out of nowhere but never heard back until she was cast in a small role in Bullets Over Broadway. Alan knew she was a comic chameleon and could do broad and silly. She could also hold a whole film. So it's kind of insane that this is pretty much Tracy Ullman's only lead film role. Frenchie isn't one of Alan's most nuanced creations. She doesn't have a huge journey. The key is we have to like her. Even though she is spitting out insults and holding our adorable gang back from doing their heist, we have to like her. Even when she's being garish and she's lying to herself and she breaks up with Ray, we still have to like her. Ullman manages not just to be likeable, but we root for her. We cheer when she's shown to be this incredible talent. We hate it when we're seeing her trying to be something that she's not when she's rich. And we want her to be loved when she's lonely. We want her to win in the end. Ullman doesn't steal the show, this is her show. But that's just the start of it. Think about what she has to do to make it work. First she has to be funny. And she is. Tracy Ullman is funny. Then she has to be this larger-than-life, loud, brash character. Which is also what Ullman kind of does, often dressing up in her various sketch comedy shows. But then she also has to play the straight man to Woody Allen. She has to do the harder job of setting up his jokes. And then she does the sad scenes, and the angry scenes, and basically all the scenes. With those long Woody Allen takes with no cuts. They're not bums. Maybe they didn't go to Harvard. Harvard? They never completed kindergarten because they were drafted. Ullman was nominated for a Golden Globe for her 
her role, but she is clearly one of the best female leads Woody Allen has ever had. It's just that bias against comedy. Kate Blanchett and Diane Weist are incredible, but I think Ullman has the tougher role, and she makes it look easy. Then there's May, played by Elaine May. It's an easier role than Ullman's, but it is no less memorable. She is the breakout character, and apart from Frenchie and Ray, the only significant character that spans both sections of the film. Alan wrote the role with Elaine May in mind, hence the name May. They had crossed paths many times and shared management for a bit. She's also a great writer and director and spent many years on that side, not appearing on screen. This was only her second film role since 1978. Her role is one that Alan has written before, the comic foil who is kind of so dumb you wonder how they even live. Which is funny because Michael Rappaport usually plays that kind of role and he's also in the film. Her timing is great and her jokes are great. Alan is obviously having fun just being funny, something he hadn't done in a while. I met a wonderful man downstairs. He seemed to like me. He said I reminded him of his wife who's dead but I assume he meant when she was alive. May, can you stop talking to me while I'm doing this? George Grizzard is billed as a star in the film, but he gets like a line and a half. You don't even see his whole face. He is set up to be May's love interest right at the end. Perhaps something was cut from the final film, which is a shame. I would have loved to have seen as much of May as possible. May is the best of the side characters who are pretty much just there to make you laugh, and what's wrong with that? Each has killer lines. Tony Darrow and Michael Rappaport had worked with Alan before and knew what to do. Was it you who came up with the idea to advertise the baked goods in Playboy and Penthouse and Hustler magazine? See, I figured if a guy is staring at a naked piece of tail and he sees the breasts and the legs, he's going to start to salivate. I mean, it's human nature. So if he's salivating, he turns the page and he comes across a picture of, let's say, our pistachio cream cookies. He thinks maybe that's why he's drooling. You understand? It's psychology. It's science. It's like a Pablo's theory. You know, with the dog, you know, when he feeds him? And it's not just the one-liners. There's plenty of silly slapstick comedy like all the water stuff in the basement. It's worth noting that that basement was actually a studio. John Lovitz rules. He's perfectly cast as a bumbling idiot who is slightly less an idiot than the others. He was a big Woody Allen fan and super nervous to work with him for the first time, but it doesn't show at all. You can just tell in scenes with him and Allen that they are just sparking off each other. You, 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 Benny, you gotta come in with us. Who's us? I mean, who's us? You, what are you so suspicious for? You know, trust me, it's it's re Remember my nickname when we were in a joint? The Brain? The Brain. That's what the guys used to call me, right? Yeah, I got it. But Ray, that was sarcastic. No, that wasn't sarcastic. That was real. No, no. It was sarcastic. That wasn't. There was nothing sarcastic no, really, about it. No, it was. Benny, it was, it was real. That was the no, Brain. what? I it was, was a, sarcastic. It wasn't sarcastic. Oh, my was God. The, oh, my God. What, I was the Brain for... Then there's Hugh Grant, who is great as David. Alan was a fan of Grant in his 90s breakout roles in films like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill. Alan actually looked at Grant to play the lead in Celebrity in 1998. It's another example of Alan and casting director Juliet Taylor being able to get massive stars in their prime. He's the only person not being outrageous, but he has the comic timing and the stumbling dialogue delivery that is so natural in Alan's films and delivers Alan's dialogue effortlessly. Grant is also playing against type. At this point, he usually plays the hapless nice guys, very similar to the Woody Allen on-screen persona. It's interesting to think what he would have done with lead roles in films like Midnight in Paris or Broadway Danny Rose. That said, over the years, he turned out to be a much more interesting actor than those 90s lead roles suggested, and it's actually not too weird to see him play such a bastard as David these days after seeing him in films like Paddington 2. Listen, interesting wanna... fact, this is where Henry James lived. Oh? Oh? Yeah. 
The band leader, stupid. Oh, man, you married to Betty Grable. Yes, yes. I, I, I knew, no, I no, 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 you're, you're thinking of Harry James. The, Henry uh, James who's, who's married to Betty Grable. I'm talking about Henry, Henry James, the author. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, this is, this is where he lived, and this is where he worked. And yeah, um, well, where did he eat? I'm hungry. I don't care where he lived. I want to know where he ate. The hairdress, right? The H is silent. Oh, did he write that too? And let's not forget about Alan as Ray. Alan has never claimed to be an actor with a wide range, but he's crafted Ray into someone who's probably very close to Woody Allen. He's never played someone so laid back. All he wants is the easy life, cheeseburgers and sports. Ray spits out his disdain for the rich, and I'm sure it's very close to the real words that Alan has said in real life. And our accountants want us to expand. We're going to be twice as big next year. So what good is being twice as big if I, if I can't get a cheeseburger? What's it all mean? The cinematographer here is Zhao Fei, the non-English speaking Chinese director of photography who worked on Sweet and Lowdown and would return for The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Of the three films that Zhao made with Alan, this is probably the strangest on a cinematography level. It's such a street level film with lots of interiors. Zhao is so wonderful playing with light and mood, it's not that it doesn't work fine, it just doesn't give this film much identity. It's especially jarring when you consider that there is randomly one of the most beautiful shots in the Woody Allen filmography in this film. It's near the start, Ray and Frenchie are on a roof, looking at the sunset as they talk. It is so gorgeous. I want to see a film that exclusively features characters talking on rooftops at sunset. It's such a spectacular joy of colour that it outshines the rest of the film. Otherwise, it's hardly a cinematic showcase. You can see why Alan thought this could work as a play. The long takes also makes it feel like it could have been a play. There's so much dialogue and one-liners flying around at pace. It's that honeymooners thing, but the honeymooners was a single locked-off camera like many 50 sitcoms. Here, the cast have to know the words, track the blocking, and the camera has to follow. And they do it for long, unbroken takes. It's not easy. But there is some lazy filmmaking going on here. Alan doesn't make New York look like anything. There's a long TV news segment that explains away what happened to our characters in a year in such a lazy way, with very little jokes and very little character work. There's even one bit, when the cookie shop gets busy, that the extras are actually holding and waving money. No one does that in real life. It doesn't feel like Alan put that much effort into the music either. It lacks any real character, just a hodgepodge of various jazz recordings from all different eras and artists. At one point, Alan actually uses Tequila by The Champs. I mean, it's a great track that is all fun, but in a Woody Allen film, the man who knows and loves jazz so much seems like an odd choice. The opening credit song is With Plenty of Money and You, performed by Hal Kemp and his orchestra in a 1936 recording. Pretty obvious why Alan chose that song. The music feels pretty obvious obvious all around. No commercial soundtrack was even released. Small Time Crooks was released on the 19th of May 2000 by DreamWorks, with a red carpet screening held a few days earlier. Small Time Crooks was the first film as part of a new deal. It's actually not incredibly clear what happened, but here's what I know. This was Woody Allen's last film for Sweetland Films. The studio was set up for Allen by his best friend, Gene Dumanian, in 1994, and was an outlet for Allen. I don't think it was ever supposed to be a studio that just made Woody Allen films, but that's what it ended up being. I say the end because this is the end. Sweetland Films was a production studio that had to work with other distributors to get their films out. In 2000, the company signed a deal with DreamWorks, leaving Sony Pictures Classics. 
But sometime around then, Alan's lawyers suggested that Alan look into the finances of his deal because it looked like he was owed millions. Alan allowed his lawyers to look into it, but it destroyed his friendship with Demanion. The end result was that Small Time Crooks was finished, but so was Sweetland. Then there was some sort of settlement, but ultimately DreamWorks released a film as if it was one of their own. DreamWorks also signed Alan for three more films. DreamWorks was still a pretty new studio at this point, and it was the brainchild of three very rich, very powerful entertainment moguls. They were director Steven Spielberg, music maverick David Geffen, and ex-Walt Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg, who would one day invent the failed Queeby. All three were Woody Allen fans, but Katzenberg, I think, was the biggest Woody Allen fan. He was the driving force in Woody Allen appearing in the early DreamWorks success that was the film Ants. Katzenberg always wanted Woody Allen and finally got him. In part of playing nice with a new studio, Alan conceded to doing some interviews. He even toured a number of universities, making appearances. In fact, Alan would become much more open to such things over the next decade. He was very private in the late 80s and 90s, in times of deep personal turmoil it's since turned out. In 2000, he was happy, married, and happy to work. DreamWorks also sent out promotional small-time crooks cookie jars that was branded and shaped like a safe. It is the most elaborate promotional Woody Allen product that I know of. Small Time Crooks is one of Allen's most successful films in a long time, and it's pretty simple to see why. DreamWorks marketed the film, and the film was an easy, pleasing comedy. It wasn't too hard to explain the premise to the audience. It just worked as a way of getting bums into seats. The film really feels out of time. In 2000, the big stars of American independent cinemas were making big-budget masterpieces like Traffic or Almost Famous. Alan was still riffing on the 40s and 50s in a very light comedy, with the same old budget and same old production values. For a while, American cinema caught up to his style, but by 2000, it was leaving him behind. For me, this film is enjoyable, but not anywhere near Alan's best work. The best part is the characters, and we just want to hang out with them. Again, that honeymooners thing. Sitcoms work because you want to come back to these characters every week. The two films in one thing still seem strange to me. Alan sets us up for this buddy heist film and it doesn't deliver. In the end, the cookie shop stuff is an extended sketch and the parable was a one-act play stretched out. Maybe Alan decided neither idea was strong enough to stand on their own and just welded them together. There's always been a part of Alan's audience that just wants to laugh and wish that Alan would leave those big ideas at the door. Well, be careful what you wish for. Still, it's a joy watching these funny people be funny. I could watch Michael Rappaport all day. I could watch John Lovitz all day. And then there's the wonderful Ullman and May. Alan doesn't get enough credit for casting two women over 40 in these lead roles and to ask them to be funny. The best bits are the jokes, the funny set pieces and some of the outrageous sets. It's still mostly fun and I don't mind revisiting it every so often. In amongst all the heavy films that Alan would make after this, it's nice to get something so silly but still kind of good. This is comfort food Woody Allen. It's cheeseburgers and sports. And if you can't get that, what's the point? Some fun facts about Small Time Crooks. This was the first film that Alan directed for DreamWorks, and we talked about Katzenberg. David Geffen was a friend of Alan's in the 70s and 80s, and Spielberg has had various times where he was going to collaborate with Woody Allen too. Most notably, he was signed up for contributing a short film to the anthology that was New York Stories, but couldn't make it in the end. That Fabergé cigarette case was a real one. It was rented to the film by John Trainer, a San Francisco business magnate and Fabergé collector. It's not the first time Trainer has lent something to an Alan production. Trainer's son, Trevor appeared over 30 years earlier as a five-month-old baby in Take the Money and Run in 1969. The cigarette case, and not the baby, was actually insured to the tune of $1 million. It was sold at auction in 2013 
for 87,000, which is a shame because Trainer said that he wished that it got stolen so he could have gotten the million bucks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. I would love to know what you think of this film, Small Time Crooks. We've been getting some great comments about our first few episodes. I'd love to read some of them out in a special episode, so keep them coming. We'll also answer any questions you might have, including some we've gotten so far, like how we choose every episode. So let me know what you think and send me some questions and we'll do that episode. You can email me at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. I have a Patreon and we have supporters, which is great. I can't express how much to appreciate all the support you guys have shown. You can follow the links in the descriptions to find out how you can support us on Patreon, or you can buy a book. We've written some books on Woody Allen. They're called the Woody Allen Film Guides. There's three volumes that cover every single Woody Allen film from Take the Money and Run to A Rainy Day in New York with heaps and heaps of trivia and facts and minute-by-minute guides. A lot of people have been saying that they found out a lot about Woody Allen's films in listening to the podcast. Well, there's way more in those books. Of course, you can find a link for those in the description as well. And you can buy some merch. The original artwork that we use for our podcast is available on T-shirts or prints or posters or tote bags, whatever you want. You can get it from Redbubble. Yes, the link is in the description. There's a great no-cost way of supporting us, which is to leave us a review. Five stars will do wherever you found this podcast. And I'd love for you to write a review as well. I'd love to know what you think. The website, as always, is woodyallenpages.com. There you'll find the latest news on Woody Allen and also years of archives with guides to all sorts of stuff throughout Allen's career. You'll also find a transcript of this episode. You can follow us on social media at Woody Allen Pages, and it's where I'll first announce what the next film is going to be in this podcast. Speaking of which, next episode, we look at one of Alan's smallest films with a lead that was one of the most difficult to cast. Thanks for listening. I saw a beautiful painting of fruit mm-hmm. um, at the uh, Met or the Whitney. Um, it might have been the, the, the Holocaust. 